And if, you, uh, if you're here this morning and you don't have your Bible with you, that's okay because we have a Bible for you. So just raise your hand and we'll get one passed out to you. I think it's even marked. Maybe, yeah, of course it's marked right where we're going to be this morning. So you can follow along, make sure I'm not making stuff up as we go this morning. Um, you can turn to Matthew chapter 2. We're going to look at the first dozen or so verses of Matthew chapter 2. And certainly as we gather today to consider and to, you know, to celebrate Christmas just a few days from now, it's a time certainly that we celebrate the birth of Jesus, but it's a time also, it's so important to contemplate our relationship with Jesus. And I think that we find a kind of a perfect place to do that, not just in Luke chapter 2, with that very familiar account of the the Christmas story, but in Matthew chapter 2, where we have the story of some pretty mysterious men. Now, these are the guys that you see in the glittering velvet robes and the fake beards, right, in the the living nativity outside of the church. Sometimes they're even dragging along a camel with them. They're, you know, they're bearing gifts, right, and they traverse afar and they followed this yonder star. And very often they follow that star right down the center of the sanctuary, right, in the big crescendo of the church Christmas pageant. They've got a song, right? They've got their own bumper sticker. They even, I found out, have their own wall decal. They've got a matching pillow set. And of course, you probably won't be surprised when I tell you that they actually now have their own essential oil. (laughs) They do. And it promises, I don't know if you can read that, but this oil promises to keep negativity far away. And of course, we're talking about the wise men, you know, whatever that actually means, right? Or, or maybe it's the magi, whoever these guys were, or maybe, maybe actually they were kings. So the wise men may well be among the least understood characters, I think, in this very first Christmas drama. They only appear here in the book of Matthew, and yet the Spirit gives considerable attention to their story, and even if Matthew doesn't give us maybe all of the details that we wish he might have, but I think that these men teach us something so important about that first Christmas. They teach us something that's even more important about our own hearts, and they, you know, they're seeking hereafter a real king, and they show us how to really worship the Christ of Christmas. So, Father, we just pray, Lord, that you would bless your word this morning, Lord, that you would give us ears to hear what your spirit has to say to your church, Lord, to each one of us individually, we pray, Lord, and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. So, hopefully you're turned there, Matthew chapter 2, and in the first verse of that second chapter here of the book of Matthew, we read that now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king. Now, I just want to pause right there, right at the outset, just to acknowledge again that Matthew actually tells us very little about the actual birth of Jesus. Of course, as we said, it's Luke 2, which records all of those familiar historical details. And what Matthew's about to tell us is something that happened after Jesus was born in Bethlehem. So after the greatest event in all of human history, 
after God himself stepped down into the human story, after that great and that glorious morning with all the angels that were announcing and the shepherds that were shepherding and that birth of that baby who was a king and a savior, the birth of Jesus who fulfilled millennia of promises and of prophecies and all the beauty and the majesty and the simplicity there of that Christmas story, all of the stables and the mangers with no room at the inn and all the animals, again, the angels. Matthew skips all of that. And instead, what we see is he has this kind of an extended genealogy in chapter 1 where he very carefully links this baby Jesus to that kingly line of David. After this mention of this miraculous conception of Jesus by the Holy Spirit, after the instruction in Matthew uh, one twenty one that says that you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. After that wonderful prophetic promise in verse 23 that says, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. So after that, Matthew moves immediately, not to describe the birth story, but the story of the immediate impact that Jesus would immediately begin to have on all people. And we're going to see the different ways that different groups of people are going to respond to him. I think that by the power of the Holy Spirit that we would each see ourselves in one of these groups. So again, we're reading that it was after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. And behold, it says, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who's been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. Now, right off the bat, I love the fact that just as soon as Jesus is born, miraculous things begin to happen. Understand, he hasn't yet spoken a word. He has not yet performed a healing. He hasn't proclaimed a single doctrine. But it was after Jesus was born, right? Right here when we're hearing, you know, all we hear is the cries of a child. And all we can see at this point is the weakness of a baby. But this incredible influence that he would have upon the world is so powerfully manifest right here at the outset. And I love the way one author put it, that there is infinite power even in an infant savior. Because suddenly things are starting to happen, including the appearance of this special star and including the arrival here to the city of Jerusalem of these three mysterious men from the east who've come looking for this king. And perhaps the greatest miracle of all, some would suggest, greater than the star, greater even than what drew the men to this place in the first place, a greater miracle than all of that is that these men on their journey stopped here as they arrived in Jerusalem to ask for directions. (laughs) Right? Who in the world were these unique men? Well, Matthew simply tells us that they were wise men. And I can see some of you wives nudging, right, your husbands. You know, some of your translations might say that they were magi, 
because the word that Matthew used was a word magoi. And it's a word that the Greek language experts tell us it's a term loosely covered a wide variety of men interested in dreams, astrology, magic, books thought to contain mysterious references to the future, and the like. So they were effectively scholars who studied searching for revelation, searching for answers about the future, and they, they looked for it anywhere and everywhere that they could. As astronomers and astrologers, they would have been looking to the heavens. And as historians and researchers, they were looking to the writings of any and all ancient authors. And we know that kings of those times were in the habit of kind of gathering together the best and the brightest of these kinds of men to help to advise them. Now, though likely not actually kings themselves, despite what church tradition or Christmas carols might tell us, they would have been held in very high esteem in their countries. And even by people who weren't from their countries, they most probably would have been very wealthy men. We see magi consulted by Pharaoh down in Egypt during the time of Joseph. We see that, again, back in Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar during the time of Daniel. And in fact, it's likely that these men were probably familiar with the writings of Daniel and all of the other Old Testament prophecies in history. Because coming here from the east, likely from the area of Babylon itself, they would have come from a place which would have been very familiar with all of those Jewish writings. Because it was a place which would have still been filled with the Jews who'd been exiled from Judah and from Israel so many centuries before. These men would have devoured the prophecies of Daniel, all those other Old Testament prophets. They would have understood that there was this promise of a coming king of the Jews. And in fact, at that time, throughout the entire region of the world, in many different cultures, there was this general expectation of a Messiah, of a great man that would come from Judea. Not very long after Jesus was born, it was the Roman historian Suetonius who wrote that there had spread all over the Orient an old and established belief that it was fated at that time for men coming from Judea to rule the world. And Tacitus Another Roman historian of the same time wrote that there was a firm persuasion that at this very time that the East was to grow powerful and rulers coming from Judea were to acquire universal empire. So here are these scholarly men who are studying all of these things in this climate of this great expectation. Here are these men who would vocationally have been following the patterns of the stars religiously when suddenly one night they had seen this unusual new star in the sky. And they knew that it told of the birth of this special king of Israel, probably because they connected it with a very well-known prophetic passage. Numbers 24:17 said that a star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise 
out of Israel. It was a prophecy that was well known. It was well regarded by all the Jewish scholars as a messianic proclamation. And the Lord uses it here to meet these magi right in their own medium. Here he uses a supernatural star to help signal and then to guide these pagan men, right? These astrologers and these astrologers. He uses this star to guide them right to his son, Jesus. Which I think is such a great reminder as we approach Christmas here of the lengths to which the Lord will go to reach out and to draw in each and every soul. And if you look back at your own testimony, right, if we each look back at our own personal journey to faith in God, what we see is that there was some special star that was employed by the Lord both to get our attention and then to lead us to him. Different for everyone. You know, maybe for a surgeon or for a doctor, it may be this sudden realization one day, maybe even right there in the operating room with a person opened up in front of them, but they realize all of a sudden the majesty and the glorious design of the human body and all of the order and the function and the intelligence and the ability that our bodies have to heal themselves. Maybe for a scientist, it's finally understanding the fingerprints of the creator right there on the creation that he or she is studying. Very oftentimes for a young couple or specifically for a young mother, it's that wonder of the miracle of birth and then this overwhelming sense of this overwhelming love for this new child and then the great responsibility to raise that child and to protect and to provide for it. For some people, it might be a crisis, right? This crushing loss of a loved one. You know, for some, it's a bankruptcy or financial stress. For others, it's a sudden relational shift. Or maybe for some, it's a, a shaking rejection. And for so many, it can be a health crisis, Maybe there's a cancer that threatens their life or there's some sort of an ongoing health issue that compromises their life. And for so many people, it's just that crushing weight of the realization of our own sin and the consequences of it as that comes to bear really on our hearts and our minds. And each and every one of these stars is unique. Right, the star that's used by the Lord to somehow supernaturally signal us about his great love for us. Every one of them unique. Every one of them also, I think, oftentimes unexplainable. Because this star which appeared here to these men, no one still really knows what this new star in the sky was. Lots of different theories. Some suggest a comet. Others suggest a supernova. Some people you know, say that it's a conjunction of planets or something entirely supernatural. Something that was divinely prepared and provided meeting these men precisely in the medium that they were studying. So here are these wise men. They'd studied all the prophecies. They knew the word. They were seeking a, a sign or something concerning the Messiah. They were hungry. And they were curious enough that they recognized those signs when they appeared. And they did more than simply study. They wanted satisfaction. 
And so we notice they took decided action. They went out and they were seeking the answers that were promised in the scriptures. So in every way so far, these men were so very noble in the way that they reacted to Jesus. And yet as they arrive here in Jerusalem, we're going to see an altogether different reaction. So they're inquiring here about the birth of this king. In verse 3 it says that when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. So not everyone welcomed this long-awaited king. Now this king Herod was the one known as Herod the Great. And indeed Herod was great. In some ways, he was great as a ruler, he was great as a builder, he was great as an administrator, and yet in other ways, he was equally great in evil things. He was great in ambition, he was great in cruelty, he was great at politics, and he was great in ruthlessness. He was a great conniver who amassed this political influence through his dealings with Mark Anthony, right, of Cleopatra fame, and he won an appointment by the Romans to rule over the Jews. And though Herod himself wasn't a Jew at all, in fact, he was born an Edomite, who were traditional enemies of the Jews because they were the descendants of Esau and not of Jacob. Herod desperately wanted to be accepted by the Jews whom he was ruling, so he converted to Judaism, probably politically motivated. Right? Now, the Jews tempered their great hatred for Herod with an admiration for these great building projects that he did on their behalf, including all of these magnificent improvements that he made to the temple. The great temple that we understand, that was built by Herod. Now, underneath all of this, Herod was a greatly suspicious man. He was motivated by personal preservation, constantly on guard against anything that would threaten his rule, and especially that came from within his own family. He was said to have had nine or possibly even ten wives. He was known for his treachery and his lust. He once assassinated his wife and three of his sons in the same night because he suspected them of being disloyal. It said that he had, at one point, he annihilated the entire Sanhedrin, right? Killing off all of the current priests and elders. Another time, he slaughtered 300 court officers in one fell swoop. So needless to say, Herod casts a dark shadow over our very bright Christmas story. So it's no surprise that Herod would be threatened by the thought of the birth of a true king. Right? He would stop at nothing to protect his power and to prevent the possibility of even the presence of this rival rightful king. And in this sense, Herod is like so many people today who reject, who reject Jesus outright because they refuse to surrender their lives to his authority as their true king. And maybe if we're honest, maybe there's just a little bit of Herod in the hearts of most of us here this morning. 
So here are these magi, they're seeking the king. Herod was afraid of the king and wanted to destroy the king. But notice also, it wasn't just Herod who was troubled by the news of this newborn king. Matthew tells us that all Jerusalem was troubled with him. So rather than rejoicing over the news of the birth of their long-awaited Messiah, the people of Jerusalem were afraid of what his birth might actually bring. Now the coming of the Messiah was to have brought salvation and healing and restoration to all of Israel and yet here the very city who should have received that news with the most joy, they were disturbed at the thought of anything that might upset the status quo. Anything that might risk the the retaliation, if you will, of their Roman rulers. Because these people of Jerusalem were keenly aware of the political and the practical ramifications of what the Magi were saying. Because the birth of a new king would introduce the possibility that the people of Israel would now have someone to support and to whom they would willingly submit. And intimidated by this, Caesar surely would have sent down troops, the city would be trampled, blood would have been shed. And so recognizing the makings of a revolution, here the only thing that the people could foresee is the terrifying consequences that would come instead of seeing all of the beautiful promises that had arrived. And so often again, it's the fear of change that so often keeps people from embracing Jesus, keeps people from accepting that good work that he promises to do in their lives. It's fear of the unknown that causes them to cling to what is known, even if there's this promise of something that's better. Because we can become so comfortable and so complacent in our current condition that we can reject Jesus who's been sent to save us from it. And and maybe like these people, maybe there are some of us this morning, it's the fear of change that's keeping you from receiving Jesus. Maybe it's the fear of change from really allowing him to really rule in your life. And so, we have the wise men seeking, we have all of Jerusalem troubled, we have Herod alarmed at the possibility of this threat against his power and position. And look what it says in verse 4, it says that when he had gathered all the chief priests and the scribes of people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So here's Herod, he doesn't know the scriptures at all for himself, But he hastily assembles all of the religious rulers and this team of the best religious scholars, right? These teachers of the law who were the the experts and they were the authorities in the Old Testament writings. And he wants to determine what it is that the prophecies actually taught about where it would be that the Christ would be born, right? Where will he be born, Herod asks kind of coyly, and in verse 5 it says, they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So the answer to Herod's question was simple, because Micah the prophet 
had given them the precise location of the Messiah's birth centuries before he was even born. So here the scribes quickly and correctly quote Micah 5.2 that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And notice this, not only did these men understand specifically where he was going to be born, but they knew exactly what he would come to do to be a ruler who will shepherd my people. And yet, they didn't do anything. Right? Picture this picture with me just for a moment. Here come these mysterious magi, right, riding into town. Now, nowhere exactly are we told how many magi there really were. Sometimes we assume three because of the song and because, as we're going to see later, they offer three gifts. But Matthew certainly doesn't tell us specifically. There may have been three. There could have been 300 magi. And yet, regardless of however many magi there were, one thing to know is that men like this did not travel alone through the desert on single camels. There would have been countless servants, all kinds of supplies for this kind of an extended desert journey. So what we're talking about here is an entire entourage of these wildly exotic people from the east that rode suddenly into Jerusalem. We know that it was enough so that all of Jerusalem knew about it, right? And they were troubled by it. it this would have been like the circus had come to town. And here the, they come here and now they're saying... They say, we're here because we're following this special supernatural star that signifies the birth of your long-awaited Jewish Messiah King, right? The hope of all Israel, the hope of mankind. And then we have the priests who rightly report that this greatly anticipated birth would have happened in a very insignificant little city that was just five miles north of where they stood in Jerusalem. Now, we would think that at this point, these religious men would have been running in their robes to get up there and to see for themselves, and yet what we see is that they did nothing. So these religious experts had all the right information, but they were personally uninterested in meeting the Messiah for themselves. Here the wise men had spent months, maybe even years, traveling across the desert. They were spending much money. They expended much energy to seek the Lord. And yet here are these religious experts who knew the word. They wouldn't even get to their feet to see what was happening just five miles away. And I love the way that one author pointed out. He said, had the wise men met with the shepherds of Bethlehem, they would have received better intelligence than they could from the learned scribes of Jerusalem. What a mess this whole situation is, right? Herod didn't know God's word. He had to ask the scribes. The scribes actually knew the word, but they didn't bother to do anything about it. But it was the wise men that were both, as James says, they were hearers and doers of the word. This is heartbreaking because you think of how close these priests were to the Messiah, and yet they did not go. They had all the right information. They had completely the wrong 
reaction. And there's so many people today that know so much about Jesus, and yet they're absolutely indifferent to Jesus and in meeting him in a personal way. Because all of their religious trappings, maybe all of their intellectual understanding, keep them in a place where they are complacent. So maybe even here amongst us this morning, maybe there's some priests and some scribes who are here, right? And you're here, you're kind of trapped in religion, and yet you're missing out on a real relationship. The Magi are seeking the king. Herod is opposed to the king. The people of Jerusalem are afraid of this king. The the Jewish priests are indifferent to the king. And then it says in verse 7 that Herod when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. Of course, we know that Herod's intention was exactly the opposite. He was determined to exalt his own position and to establish his own authority and to eliminate the babe of Bethlehem. And this ultimately is the effect of every person who rejects Jesus. Whether it's through open hatred and hostility like Herod, whether it's through fear like the people, whether it's through indifference like the religious crowd, the fact is that God's greatest gift to all of humanity the birth of his son Jesus and the forgiveness, the salvation that he brings, that gift will be rejected by so many. Jesus said, of course, in John 3.16, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And with that, most all of us are familiar. It is the most read verse in the most read chapter of the most read book in the most read book in all of human history. Think about that just for a moment. And yet, what few people do is go any further when Jesus goes on to explain this. In verse 17, he says that God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they have been done in God. So at great length, in great detail, Jesus explains that it's ultimately a person's desire for darkness that keeps them from receiving the light. Here at Christmas time, there are lights out everywhere. They're on buildings, they're along streets, they're up in the trees, they're in homes. And there are lights everywhere because the light 
has come. And this is the very most simple truth of the gospel of Jesus. Jesus would say later in John 12 that I have come as a light into the world that whoever believes in me, what? Should not abide in darkness. And these wise men were seeking after that light. Even after Herod here tries to turn them into kind of unwitting servants in his evil plan, right? He asks them to report back when they had found the child. And it says in verse 9 that when they heard the king, they departed. And behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them until it came and stood over where the young child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. So here are these magi on this very short journey just from Jerusalem to Bethlehem, and yet we see another miracle because that very same star that they had seen in the east and had guided them on their long journey west, it now reappeared, and it led them to a specific spot right there in Bethlehem where they found the child Jesus, which I think is just scriptural support that if they had just waited a little bit longer, they would have found it eventually, even without having to stop and ask for those directions in the first place, right? They would have gotten there. Now, it's interesting, the wording here is literally that the star came and stood over the head of the child. And some suggest that this sort of star-like shine over the head of Jesus, that's where we get that idea of that, that halo, which you see in most ancient and medieval art. At any rate, there's this sense that the star is sort of mysteriously moving, guiding the magi. Now, what I think is super interesting is that apparently stars or planets, naturally, they travel from east to west, kind of moving across the heavens as the earth, of course, is rotating in that direction. Stars don't travel from north to south. And yet here, this star moves supernaturally from south to north, right, from Jerusalem up to Bethlehem. And this fact has led some to speculate that what the Magi saw in the sky and what it was that led them there to that specific house and what it was that came there to rest above the head of Jesus, that it was nothing less than the Shekinah glory of God, that it was the manifest presence of God amongst his people. It's that same glory that had led the children of Israel through the wilderness for 40 years as a pillar of fire and cloud, it's certainly, it's possible that that is precisely what they saw in the east. And for lack of anything better, they called it a star. But it was the Shekinah glory of God present now on earth again in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, Isaiah chapter 40 is a very familiar messianic passage. You'll recognize it. It says in verse 3 that the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalt, uh, exalted, rough places smooth, the, um, that the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. 
and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now this idea of preparing a way of the Lord, of course it's a word picture because the real preparation for the glory of the Lord to be revealed has to take place in our own hearts. And in our own hearts, there are low places that need to be lifted up. There are high places that need to be flattened out. The the crooked needs to be made straight. The rough parts need to be made smooth. Sometimes in our own hearts, there even needs to be a path that's cut through a mountain of pain and of hurt. But in all of this, the Lord will be faithful to do that work so that the glory of his son can be seen. We read in verse 11 that when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshiped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Now, there's a couple quick things I need to point out here, which I hope won't ruin anybody's Christmas. Now, the fact that Matthew tells us Jesus was a young child as opposed to a newborn or an infant or a baby, he was probably at this point between 6 and 18 months old. The fact that the Magi visited him here in a house rather than in a stable where he had been born leads us to conclude that despite what our beloved Christmas carol or our little blessed nativity scenes would tell us, the Magi didn't arrive on Christmas morning. They arrived many months later. They weren't there with the cattle and the donkeys and the sheep and the shepherds. So if you have a beautiful nativity scene that you'd love to set up each year, right, with the wise men kneeling down there by the manger, absolutely set it up, but just put the wise men across the room, (laughs) right? Put them over on another shelf somewhere because it reminds us that they were still on their journey seeking after Jesus. Now, what's much more important than when they arrived or where they arrived is what they did when they arrived. What did they do? They fell down and they worshipped him. Just like we've seen from countless Old Testament saints from Abraham and Moses and David. We see it in New Testament believers. We're going to see it from the elders around the throne in the book of Revelation. Right? We see it in all the very angels of heaven, from the cherubim to the seraphim. These great men humbled themselves and laid themselves out at the feet of King Jesus. What a strange sight this must have been to see these impressive foreign dignitaries bowing down on the ground before this young child. And then offering him these costly, lavish gifts that were fitting for royalty but also would speak powerfully to his coming ministry prophetically. Now, some suggest that completely unknowingly, that through these gifts that the wise men gave, that they were acknowledging Jesus in the threefold ministry that he would have. That gold, of course, indicates that they acknowledge Jesus as a king. Right? Gold is a, a metal associated with kings, and he is the righteous ruling king of this earth. Now, by offering frankincense, that's a spice that was used by the priests. 
as they would burn incense in the temple. So the wise men were acknowledging Jesus, again, not that they understood this, but they were acknowledging Jesus not only as a mighty king, but also as a priest, right? As that mediator, the bridge between God and all human beings, offering a sacrifice to God on behalf of all mankind. Now, myrrh was a spice that was used in burials. So it would have been a strange gift to be giving to a child. But again, in it, the wise men probably unknowingly were acknowledging that Jesus would be a martyred prophet, right? Who would give his life for the sins of mankind. So prophet, priest, king. It's that unique threefold ministry that only the Lord Jesus could fulfill on our behalf. Now, quickly, others simply see that each of these gifts point to some unique aspect of Jesus, right? Gold, a symbol of his deity and his glory. Frankincense, right? Suggesting the fragrance of a a life of sinless perfection. And myrrh, again, kind of pointing to his sufferings that he would endure bearing the sins of the world. Both of these views are equally illustrative, aren't they, of the wonderful and the inescapable glory of Jesus. And whichever one you prefer, what's important to see for us is that this true worship of the Magi was lavish, and it was luxurious, and it cost them something. Because authentic worship is always costly. It may cost us socially or relationally. It may cost us financially as we get to that place where we place Jesus above everything and everyone else. It will always cost us personally as we humble ourselves before him and as we lay aside our pride and our self-sufficiency and our self-focus, even as we let go and we lay aside that guilt and that shame maybe that we've been wearing for so many years as armor, right? As we step aside from our place on the throne of our hearts and really allow him his rightful rule over our lives. And why wouldn't we? His rule is a rule of grace and of mercy, and of provision for us, and of protection over us. It's a rule of peace, and of restoration, and of wholeness, and of healing, as we wisely choose just to allow him to be who he really is. A king, and a savior, and the light come into this world. Charles Spurgeon said this, that those who look for Jesus will see him, Those who truly see him will worship him. Those who worship him will consecrate their substance to him. So we read in our very final verse, right? After they had worshiped Jesus, it says there in verse 12 that the wise men, then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. So remember, the wise men were students not only of the stars, They were students of dreams. So it's very fitting that they were warned by the Lord in a dream about what Herod truly intended. And I love the way that their initial worship now was manifest in their obedience as they altered their course 
avoiding Jerusalem on their way home. They had found the king that they had sought. They had found the answers that they were searching for. And then they just kind of disappear off the scene as mysteriously as they had entered. That's it. They're done. Now, I love what it says there that they went home a different way. And of course, that's talking about a physical direction. And yet, doesn't it also speak to us about a spiritual reality? Because when we seek after the king and when we offer our gifts and our worship to the king, do we not always go home a different way? And the reality is that no one who meets Jesus with a sincere heart can possibly return home the same way because a true encounter with him transforms everything about our lives. In 2 Corinthians 5, of course, we all know it. It says that if anyone is in Christ, he is a what? A new creation, that old things have passed away, and behold, all things have become new. And if you're here this morning, and you don't yet know Jesus Christ personally, just like these wise men, you can find a new direction for your life that comes as a result of finding the king. You simply need to acknowledge him as your king and begin to worship him. And we want to help you do that. And we have people who will be here and who can pray with you and minister to you and answer questions that you might have and help you get started on that new path for your life. Now, for those of us who are here this morning who do know Jesus as our king, there's still so much that we can be reminded of by these wise men, not, you know, not the least of which is the importance of continuing to seek him, and maybe even more so, reminded of that costly, extravagant worship that he and he alone deserves once we found him. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word, and we thank you so much, Lord, um, just for this week as we are going to celebrate, Lord, this greatest event, Lord, to celebrate the birth of your son, Jesus. And Father, we pray for each one of us that, um, Lord, in the midst of all of the running around and the preparing for Christmas, Lord, that we truly wouldn't lose sight of the meaning of Christmas, Lord. We hear it so much, it becomes almost commonplace to be reminded, Lord. But I pray that we would each take some time, Lord, this week and just allow the truths of, of your word, Lord, and the truths of the miracle of the birth of Jesus really to penetrate our hearts. And Father, for those here this morning who, who still don't know Jesus, Lord, for whom those truths have not um, taken hold of their lives, Father, I pray you'd be speaking to them even now. Lord, I pray that your spirit would be quickening their hearts. Lord, draw them to a place of faith in Jesus. Lord, that they can start and they can know this new direction for their lives. And so, Lord, we thank you. Lord, what great joy it gives us, Father, to be in Jesus. And so we thank you, Lord, in his precious name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand up and let's uh, worship the Lord for he's worthy. Amen. Amen.